Hello and welcome to a special edition of the SPAC Insider Podcast. This week's SPAC Insider's founder, Christy Marvin, speaks with Mark Stone from the Gores team. Christy and Mark discuss how both the SPAC market and the Gores playbook have evolved through transactions dating back to the team's deal with Hostess in 2016. They also get into how the Gores team dealt with difficult macro conditions in 2021 and what Mark thinks the SPAC market will look like in the future. Take a listen. Thanks, Mark, for joining us today on the podcast. For those listening, Mark Stone is the CEO of the Gore SPACs, which is one of the most prolific SPAC teams out there, having completed eight combinations to date, the most of any other team. However, they also have two more deals in the announced column with Gore's Guggenheim's Polestar, the electric vehicle manufacturer, and Gore's Eight's recently announced deal with Footprint in December which is in the business of manufacturing sustainable packaging solutions. Plus, the Gores team has four more SPACs out searching with another one on file to IPO. They have also one of the lowest redemption percentages at 17.5%. Although if we remove Sonder, which despacked in January in a very, very volatile market, that percentage actually drops to 6.2%. So having said all that, let's start with how the Gores team came to be back in 2015, when you IPO your first spec, you know, what's, what's your origin story, so to speak, and what attracted you to this asset class? Sure. Thank you for the time this morning. Back in, we were a 30 plus year old private equity firm based in Beverly Hills, California. In 2014, Alec Gores, our founder and still chairman and CEO, came to me and said, look, private equity is great, but it's becoming hotly competitive. I think we might want to diversify into other areas. Can you put together a series of ideas of other types of vehicles in, in, that would allow us to play in spaces we don't with private equity today? So on one hand, it kind of expands our, our universe, but on the other hand, it also then doesn't present any conflicts with our existing LPs. Uh, SPACs was one of those that at which we looked. Uh, the problem was at that time, and I think over the course of history, they were viewed as a four-letter word. And in fact, I had many people with whom I had conversations mentioned that it's the place that you go only if you're truly desperate, if you have no other options. Um, we took a step back and said, well, let's look at it. Is it because there are fundamental flaws with the vehicle or is it because people haven't been using the right playbook? And our hypothesis was the latter, that there is a playbook with which you could execute that would actually make it a place where the best of breed companies would go uh, in going public if it's the right fit, rather than just those that were desperate. And so we embarked on raising our first back in 2000. 15 and then did our first transaction with Hostess Brands in 2016. It's funny, the, the Hostess deal, I would say, probably started the resurgence of SPACs because it was such a high profile deal. It definitely was in the news media quite a bit, very successful. And that, that closed the end of 2016. And then we saw this resurgence starting in 2017 of SPACs, which obviously continued to this day. But it's actually your best performing spec right now. What do you think is the reason for that? And maybe contrast it with what's going on in the current market um, and why you thought that was a great combination target. Well, so let me say two things. One, one, you're absolutely right. I think it was highly regarded. Uh, I think many people were very surprised, um, especially because it was Apollo owned half of it. It was CD Metropolis and, and Apollo. And I think many people viewed Apollo as a very shrewd private equity firm, and to the extent that they would take literally their best prized asset and bring it public through a SPAC, I think shocked a lot of people. We were honored to be able to partner with both Dean and um, Andy Juar over at Apollo to bring hostess. It really got back to what I said a minute ago about the hypothesis. You know, we actually said, look, it's not always the right fit. If a private equity firm has something they want to sell and they can sell to a strategic at some massive premium and they want to get 100% out, SPAC's not an option, right? If they still want to get 100% out, 
that, you know, they're going to lean on probably selling to another financial sponsor. Where we felt SPACs could actually have some merit is when people actually thought the, pro- the public route offered them something that they wouldn't get in the private domain. So that could be a higher, higher valuation. And that's what happened in Hostess. Uh, Hostess had run a full process. And I think the highest offer they got was about 9.25. We were able to pay them over 10 times for the money they took off the table. Apollo's weighted average, and they exited fully six months later, their weighted average exit was 11.9 times, right? So almost three multiples above that, which they would have received had they exited privately. So that was a great thing. The other thing that we really focused on was the fact that you had two principal owners here in Apollo and Dean Metropolis, Apollo wanting to ring the bell and exit completely, and Dean wanting to remain the single largest shareholder. So we were able to structure the transaction in a way that provided each of the owners with what they wanted as an outcome. And so it was fairly unique relative to some of our other SPACs, but I think it really drew it. The the last two things I'll say, which were critical in the new playbook that we designed is one, it was a prized asset. It was an asset that we knew would have appeal in the public domain, right? Which SPACs of old, that wasn't what they did. It was just some random company coming public as a means of accessing capital. So that, that was one. I think the second thing was the size. Right? It was a $2.2 billion transaction. We felt going in with our playbook that whatever asset we brought to market had to exceed $1.5 billion enterprise value to be attractive to the broader public markets, especially the mutual funds. Mm. So it's interesting you bring up Dean Metropolis. So you know, typically it was always the standard Gores team, but you have been working with both the Guggenheim guys and uh, Dean Metropolis. What's the strategy behind that? So Dean, uh, Dean, interestingly enough, uh, and Alec Gores had known each other for a decade before we did the hostess transaction. I, I don't think I would would say that they were the best of friends, but they they were they knew each other socially. Had never done something together professionally, but it set the foundation of a, a decent relationship. As we went through the process, Dean kept coming back to us and having conversations. We said, "Look, I keep getting." you know, advisors telling me I should go raise a SPAC. The reality though is I don't have the infrastructure to be able to support that. And so what would you think about doing something together? I bring obviously the massive credentials and background in the consumer side. You guys bring the infrastructure now the experience and success. Why don't we marry the two together? And so we waited a little bit there, but it was absolutely something that we wanted to do together. We've done it twice with Gores Metropolis 1 and Gores Metropolis 2. In both cases, we ended up not doing a consumer consumer transaction, but that really had more to do with the fact that the market on the consumer side wasn't really robust. And so, you know, one of the benefits of SPACs is if you can't find something in your targeted sector, you do have the option to pivot to something as long as it's attractive and will be well-received in the public domain. And so what was the thinking behind pairing up with the Guggenheim guys? You know, Guggenheim was a a relationship that we struck up several years ago, very strong relationship out of the gate. I think on a similar basis, you know, their view was they really wanted to do something. They wanted to do something in size. Gores Guggenheim was 800 million. I think they felt that they had a lot that they could bring to the party, obviously a lens for potential opportunities that we might not otherwise have. Also access to capital. I think though, at that time, they really looked at us and said, but you know, you are, you've gone down this learning curve that we have not yet gone down. And we think the bigger mistakes that are being made in the market, or one of the mistakes that's being made in the market is people are coming in thinking they know how to do this and they don't, and they stub their toe. And so geez, we really would love to partner with you to make sure this first one is done and done well. And so it was almost a perfect, perfect relationship. And we went out and we were fortunate enough to, uh, to partner with Polestar and excited to be bringing them public. 
it's it's interesting because you know typically the Gore's team is not really focused on high growth companies. Let's call it. Did your view on that change at all in 2021 as the market sort of pivoted toward that? Well, I break high growth or what I'll call emerging growth into two categories. You know, one are the two deals that we did, which were Matterport and most recently Sonder. Those were really led by two individuals we brought on board in October of 2020 from SoftBank. And those individuals, Ted and Justin, really that's their domain. So we brought them on specifically to focus on that that world. That world was was a rocket ship for probably a good yeah. nine months. And now it's 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 I think very quickly plummeting to earth. Hopefully it doesn't crash. You know, it can just, it can it can level off at the appropriate altitude. Uh, but for us historically, no, we've always looked at companies that would be valued off of EBITDA, right? Companies in more mature industries, companies that were more seasoned in and of themselves. Obviously, something characteristic across all the most outstanding management teams. Um, but you know, it was interesting because in in June of 2020, so you know, lockdown was still in, in tow. We were introduced to the folks at Luminar. And we thought it was just such a unique story that we had to explore it. And uh, in exploring it and, and certainly meeting Austin, the CEO, uh, we just said this is so unique that we think we will step away from our traditional, you know, multiple EBITDA and bring Luminar public. And so we did it. And then since then, when we looked at the EV space, we turned away. I mean, all the companies that have come public and then some that haven't, we've looked at all of them, right? We've looked at so much, uh, uh, so many other things in autonomy and nothing has stood out as being highly differentiated. Polestar was different. It is the only other EV manufacturer, right, that, that is actually making and selling cars today. It was making and selling cars last year, right? Everybody else is, you know, hey, we still have to build our manufacturing capability and all of that. Polestar is making and selling cars today. They're in over 14 markets. They're able to leverage the infrastructure of Volvo, right, which allows them and affords them opportunities that no other pure play startup EV manufacturer is afforded. So we just felt that it was unique enough that it was worth. And I think that's how we're going to approach it, go forward, which is something that's highly differentiated and we think truly unique that we think the, the public markets will embrace and that we think will perform well over the coming years. Those opportunities, I still think we'll look at. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because Luminar, right, is let's call it EV adjacent with, you know, LIDAR, autonomous driving vehicles. It's a tech company and it's still performing really, really well in the market where pretty much everything isn't. <laughs> Well, I, I think Lunar is an interesting one because if you think about it, first of all, if you ever get the opportunity to meet Austin, he, he's a pure genius. He operates at a level that I'm not even sure any of us are, are, are aware exists. But I think more importantly, what we do, when I say points of differentiation, we look for points of differentiation that are critical to value. So if I said in Polestar, they're out in 14 markets today. I mean, most companies that are coming to market, Lucid, others, you know, that are pure plays are in one market, the US, right? Because to expand into alternative markets, to set up service points, et cetera, et cetera to get the, the proper licenses, et cetera, et cetera, that just takes significant time and capital. And so we looked at Polestar and just said, Polestar has so many unique advantages relative to uh, other pure plays that it's going to be able to move at a pace so much faster that we think that gives them a competitive advantage. I think when you looked at Luminar, same thing. Part of our due diligence was really digging in with Volvo. We knew the agreement with Volvo was coming where Volvo was going to say, step one was to build this as something on some of their higher end or more premium cars. And then since then, you've seen the Volvos come on and said, it's going to be a standard piece on every single one of their cars. We saw the pipeline of other opportunities that were coming down the path. And that just told us without a doubt these folks were far ahead from any of their other competitors. And not only did we believe that just by talking with Austin and doing our internal due diligence, but the marketplace, right? The, the OEMs out there were speaking by partnering with Luminar and making Luminar a standard piece of what they've done. Daimler's now done it on the commercial side and others have already been, been announced as well. 
So it's interesting you talk about differentiation, things like that. But I want to sort of pivot a little bit in the differentiation of SPACs, right? Like uh, there's been a lot of talk this year about European SPACs, Asian SPACs as well. What are your thoughts on that? you think the Gores team will ever do a European listed SPAC? Well, it's interesting. I, I live in, I'm based still in London. I've been in London for, for eight years. And so when I, we first got into this, I said, why don't we raise one in the US? But at the same time, why don't we do one based in London? That's just now starting to open up. I think anything that's been done in Europe to date has really been done. I think that the, the largest market is, is, is in Amsterdam. But, and then there's the Asian specs. We traditionally as a firm have not done much in Asia. So I don't know that that's really something that's on our radar. Europe is definitely there, but what we want to be very, very careful Love. And it's what's happened when, you know, the euphoria in, in kind of late, late summer of 2020 started to hit or build is we just said, look, we want to stay a premier sponsor. We want to do highly differentiated and well-performing deals uh, to do that. You know, as, as this euphoria hits, we just got to make sure we don't make mistakes. And so, look, people are testing out the European markets. Uh, I think there had been uh, mixed results. I'm, I'm still think that the, the European markets and certainly Asia are trying to find their footing. So we're not rushing in. We're more than happy to stay right now in the U.S. But I think at least Europe is on our radar over the near term. Should we find some stability across all markets? You know, looking ahead, because you do obviously have uh, some SPACs out searching. So I, I'm, I'm not going to ask for specifics, but where, where do you see the most opportunity heading into the rest of 2022 and maybe even 2023? Is it a particular geography or sector or or no, you're just kind of looking at everything? No, I mean, look, when we got into this at the very beginning, if you think about it, again, going back when we were doing our homework in 2014, everybody was saying, oh, you've got to be a sector specific SPAC because SPACs historically had been that. But that had been because the genesis of the majority of people raising SPACs were, let's say the two of us are ex-auto people. We've been in auto 25 years, but we find ourselves unemployed. But we've got a massive Rolodex. We know so much about the space. We think we can add incredible operational value. You and I would go raise 175, $150 million SPAC based on that exact recipe, right? And so therefore we would, we'd be sector specific to auto. When we came into this, one of the things, again, going back to this hypothesis in the playbook, was we said two years is a very short time period. If you back off six months that you really need on a conservative basis from when you announce a transaction to closing it, you really have 18 months. 18 months is a very, very, very short window. So we said, we need to cast as wide of a net as possible Two, remember that what I said is we look for highly differentiated companies. So we don't care where they come from. We put a much higher priority on the highly differentiated, right, very well-performing company and a strong management team or outstanding management team than we do the sector in which it, it sits. And then the last piece you have to throw in there is the dynamic. I mean, it's got to be something where you're a good fit relative to the other options um, the private, whoever the seller is, right? Or the existing shareholders, there are other options. And so you could get in and find a great asset, phenomenal management team, sector that's being embraced by the public markets. But you find that the, the, the existing shareholders, they want to go down a different path. They want 100% proceeds. They want to ring the bell and move on. Or you know, the CEO and management team don't want to be public. They'd rather sell to another private investor. So you're out of luck. And so I think when you mapped all those together, we said we need to cast a, a wide net. The only sector we don't look at right now or, or would tend to shy away from are sectors that are not being embraced by the public markets. For the first, what, five years when we were in SPACs, energy was mm -hmm. a no-no. 
So you just wouldn't look at anything energy, right? Now, energy's obviously come back significantly since then, but that's, that's how we would look at it today. Any sector that would be embraced uh, with a highly differentiated, strong management team, et cetera, et cetera. Geography, you know, if you want to go, we've raised our bar to kind of one or two billion enterprise value and, and above. Typically, that means that it's somebody that's in a you know, European market, a US market, if that's the only market they're in, but they're a pretty significant player in those markets, or two, uh, they're a global player. Uh, and then we don't care where they're based. If you think about it, we did the Ardon Metal Packaging deal. That's a Luxembourg-based company, Polestar is based in Gothenburg, Sweden. So it really doesn't matter to us where the companies are based. It's just much more around the dynamics. Uh, look, I think go forward, the bar's just been raised. The pipe market is that much tougher. Uh, they're looking for something to compensate them for the incremental market risk. I think when you look at um, sellers, sellers are far more skeptical. I mean, for the longest time, not the longest time, again, it's measured probably in quarters. You know, you had advisors <laughs> that didn't even know what SPACs were three years ago, right? They really didn't. And they were going, you know, a year and a half ago and, and advising their clients, you should just go a SPAC, a SPAC only route. Now that's died. It's unfortunately swung like pendulums usually do too far in the other directions. And now advisors are spooked. They're not in many cases, even putting SPACs as an option on the table, boards and management teams are being spooked. And so I think the number of folks willing to engage has, has gone down. I think a benefit to us is I think for those that are willing to move forward, they're looking for a quality sponsor who's done this successfully. Uh, but pipe markets are tough. Back ends, obviously, very, very tough uh, with the redemptions and everything else. I mean, investors are, are being very clear about it. But, but I think if you, I still think there's a great market for successful SPACs if you can find these differentiated companies that really do deserve to be public. And a little bit to your earlier question, I, I don't think it can be this hockey stick growth that can't be substantiated. Footprint's a good example, which is, you know, we do, it is a very, very strong growth in that. It's interesting you bring up that point about, you know, how strong teams or serial teams with experience, like you definitely have a leg up, but, you know, just thinking about what you just said, some of the teams or the deals that are coming out now, 15 month time horizon, overfunded, they don't have SPAC experience. How challenging is that going to be for them? You think, I mean, just having been in the market yourself with so many deals. Look, I think we're, we're, we're reaching points of desperation, a desperation that also yields some potential opportunity. And I don't think it ends well. And so let's play it through on both sides. First of all, Somebody raising 15 months, 18 months, overfunded trusts with, you know, full warrant, you know, uh, you know, two thirds of a warrant, half a warrant, whatever it may be. You know, those are going to be tough to get done. Again, if you go back to 18 months and say back off six months that you need and the SEC is taking much longer right now. I mean, you, we used to get two week turnarounds on, on filings outside of the first filing. We just had one come back on Friday. It was a full four weeks, right? Mm -hmm. And that was our third, that was our third, third or fourth round with them. So, you know, things are just stretching out. So if you back off six months, you've got a year to find a deal. And right now, as we just talked about, deals are not, it's, you know, the pipelines are not overly robust. They were a year ago. They certainly are not there today. So I think that's tough. But I think people are getting desperate. They had committed themselves in their head to wanting to go raise a SPAC. The, the advisors are willing to do it, but saying, look, there's blood money that, that you have to be willing to put forth if you're going to go do this, and which I don't think is the appropriate thing to do. I think it's hurting the market, but, but you know, they're in the business to do these listings and they choose to do, at least some of them do. But then let's swing to the other side, which is when I say about opportunities, there are a lot of companies that'll sit there a little bit more towards, unfortunately, the old days of SPACs, whereas if you really don't have other options, you know, go to a SPAC. You're going to have boards and companies that will sit there and say, hey, we still want to go public. 
They're going to go to SPACs and SPACs are going to say, hey, look, I'm in the last year, my last eight months, I need to find a deal or I'm going to lose this money. And the companies are going to try to take advantage of that. They're going to say, fine, but here's what you have to do. You're going to have to do this with your promoter. You're going to have to do this, or you're going to have to come up with this capital. And if people want to get a deal done, I think some of those SPACs will bend. I think the unfortunate outcome of that, though, is if those companies really are not great companies, it's not going to end well for anybody. You're going to have massive continued massive redemptions, which is only going to further tarnish the market. The companies are going to come public. They're going to underperform. Uh, I think people are not going to get good returns. But if you know, many of these sponsors will say, look, if I at least at a minimum get my capital back, that's better than not doing anything at all. I've asked other people this before, but what are your thoughts on liquidations? Do you think there are going to be a, a lot of liquidations? Like I personally don't. I, I think you're going to get a lot of these situations where they get desperate and they'll get a deal done. And it'll just be done badly. <laughs> But do you think there will be a lot of liquidation? I mean, look, you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of SPACs out there. I think the time horizon here is what the next 15 months, probably maybe even less than that, maybe it's 14 months here for the, for the majority of those folks. I, I just don't know that there are hundreds of deals to be brought to market. And, and I don't know. I mean, you've already started to see a few liquidations. You've actually seen some deals that kind of dip below minimum cash levels that were then you know pushed to the side and not done. Um, so I, I do think there's going to be a fair number of either just outright liquidations or um, where, you know, maybe even the sponsors proactive and just says, look, we're not going to get anything done. We're at week eight, you know, uh, 18, 20, whatever. And so we're just going to return the capital or there are going to be deals that people are going to try to force through where the market's just absolutely going to say no. Uh, and they're either going to get through, but they're going to get through with, you know, 98% redemptions or something like that. So there's not going to be any meaningful float and they're just going to languish like SPACs of old. Or the seller is going to sit there and say, I don't want to be caught in this dungeon with my remaining ownership stake that's going to take me potentially never to get out of. So I'm going to take the, the deal off the table and, and go a different direction. Yeah, it feels inevitable. Like, you know, we're, it's just going to be a really painful, as you said, let's call it at least 2022. Yep. But at, at some point when we kind of clear out the deadwood, you know, like a forest fire, right? Just burn everything down <laughs> to let the new growth come back. Do you see a scenario where the SPAC market is healthier because of it? I think it is, but I think it's limited in its size. I mean, it's just, I, I think there's there's room in the in the broader market with, with I think, quality sponsors. Absolutely. I, I think the SPAC market is here to stay. I mean, there are so many benefits of a SPAC relative to, let's say, a, a traditional IPO that it makes sense for, not for everybody, for, for many companies to go this, this SPAC route, but that's a, a finite number, right? And so that, that can afford a finite number of SPACs. I, but I do think we need to flush through all of this. And I think there's going to be a lot of pain associated with, with flushing through this. The good thing is now relative to, let's say, 2015, when we raised our first back. We raised our first back. When you would go talk to private equity firm, you know, which are in large part are a huge number of sellers, they were not aware. I mean, some would represent they understood SPACs, but even then when you got into the conversation, you realized they didn't. Most of them would just acknowledge, hey, I don't know SPACs, right? I don't know them at all. Um, and then certainly there were no corporate opportunities. That's the, in our private equity world. We were big corporate spin guys. That Those were the clear majority of our deals. But when we entertained conversations with corporates, again, they didn't understand SPACs and they just said, no, thanks. Now you started to see them. We've got, you know, out of Volvo, we bought Polestar. Out of Arda, we bought Arda Metal Packaging. So you're starting to see more of those. So you've seen the market actually open. You've got private equity sponsors that are highly educated on SPACs. Now, or I, I guess I should say modestly too highly educated. You've got the advisor groups. I mean, I can't tell you the number of advisors out there that tell me today, hey, we've got it. We're built around, we've now reorganized internally around SPACs. We're here to support SPACs. Three years ago, we weren't. 
right? In fact, the majority of people internally didn't even know that, which is why we weren't pitching as them as an alternative. So I think now you've got a far more educated base of players in the marketplace. And I think that is going to turn out well for, for SPACs overall. That's why I don't think they go away. And then the other piece I'll use is the pipe. I know the pipe market's really, really hard right now. I'll go back when we were raising the pipe for Hostess in 2015 and 2016, there, were, there was no pipe market. Right? <laughs> I mean, it just didn't exist. Right. We went and tried to leverage our LPs from our, from our private equity days. And you know, we found some guys that were crossover to, to try to build into it. But now you actually have a pipe market that's out there. It's it's actually it's actually pulled back significantly, but I think those players are going to come back when the market right sizes. So so here's a, a fun question for you, Mark. Of all the SPACs that you've completed to date, which one has been the most challenging? Our, of all of them, Ardon Metal Packaging. And, and that's on a relative basis, not on an absolute basis. And I, I'm shocked because if you had asked me all through the Ardon process, or at least when we began it, I, I would have said uh, this would have been probably one of the most uh, fruitful and exciting and least challenging. Uh, but it turned out to be quite quite the opposite for a number of different reasons. If you just walked through uh, what happened there, if you when we, when we were out raising the pipe for Ardon, you're talking about back half of 2020, uh, that's when the euphoria hit on growth. And so when we're out there talking about value and we're talking about <laughs> multiples of EBITDA, the rest of the market is talking about multiples of revenue out in 2027, right? Um, so it was really hard to get people's attention. And I think more importantly, what was happening was people were seeing some of these companies go public and their stocks shoot to you know, 30, 40, 50 dollars a share. And so what was happening was everybody was saying, hey, that's what I'm looking for. That's, that's what I'm interested in hearing about. And we're coming out instead and saying, here's a company that's going to generate 20, 30, 40% returns, right? And, and I think the response is, oh, that's a little sleepy, again, relative to the broader market. So it was tough to get people's attention. The beauty is once people heard the story, and I think it's a fantastic story from an outstanding management team, we actually had great success early on. We, we were well oversubscribed for the pipe. Arda, the parent company that was spinning Arda Metal Packaging off, chose not to take the excess capital. So we stayed right at what our target was, but we had the oversupply, which gave us a strong sense of bullishness. The, the second thing that happened is we actually heard, if you remember, April of 2021 is when the whole warrant issue came down from the SEC, which really shut the market down for, for several months. We had actually just heard from the SEC the day before saying that they had no more comments on our filing. Hmm. Uh, and so we Except were- for this one large one. <laughs> well, so what happens, we go, okay, great. We can close in, yeah. in May of 2021. And lo and behold, they, they would not allow, because of the warrant issue, they just said, well, we look, we won't allow you to, 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 to go effective. And so we then had to go through all of that. And so that actually delayed us by three months. So instead of closing in May, we actually closed in August. And if you think about that extended three months on the back end, it does lose the attention of a lot of other people and the momentum that you had built up to that date. So we kind of had this, if you will, setback in the wall. The third piece was when we got to close, it was, early, I mean, um, yeah, close early in redemption, it closed um, early August. Um, we were in a market, a technical market glitch for about 10 days there. Uh, we had just closed Matterport two weeks earlier. Matterport had zero redemptions. We get to this one, and it was actually the first fact that we had closed where we ran into anything other than zero redemptions. And so, you know, which was a shock to us again because of the the, the, this, the strength of the story and everything. And then I'd say since then, at least initially out of the gate, we were caught up. Um, you know, we closed in, in August, if you think about that. So, you know, end of last summer and into the fall, you started to see anything that was associated with the SPAC 
uh, going you know, risk off. And I think things were just indiscriminately being sold or people were eliminating positions to create liquidity. And I think, unfortunately, our metal packaging got caught up in that. So again, relative to broader expectations, um, you know, I, th- I think it was one of the more challenging ones. And, and certainly the good news is the story always has a good ending, which is, look, they're coming into their own. They've announced earnings. They've announced now that they're going to return some capital and issue a dividend, which they see increasing over the coming years. They just announced that last week. Uh, and I really start, I, I think you're starting to see, get people to see the company for what it is, you know, disassociated with a SPAC and a true value play that's, that's worth the attention. So, but, but challenging all along. I mean, every, every single step that we took, it was always something that was a little bit of a surprise and something we had never experienced before. Yeah, it, 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 timing is everything, right? Um, I think people discount market timing with SPACs. You know, like the the saying has always been the SPAC window is, or at least the IPO window is always open, but that's kind of not true for the DSPAC. <laughs> you know, like you really have to time it well. Well, I, I would say in an ordinary market, so let's say we hit a normalized market here and that's, I don't know, I'm going to make up a number. That's 50 SPACs, right? If you hit a normalized market, I would. I don't think we'll, we'll see uh, what we've seen. I, I don't think we'll see that. I mean, there certainly will be some some influence of timing, right? Probably less so than for a traditional IPO, but there will certainly be some influence, but it won't be as material as it's been, certainly not as material as it was with Arda metal packaging. Just, I, I think because what caused it was the order of magnitude of deals out there. I mean, right now, if I talk about this, just everything being, you know, the baby being thrown out with the bathwater after we closed Arda, just everybody indiscriminately saying anything associated with a SPAC, whether it's you know, despacking now or raising a pipe or even after the despack, we just don't want to have anything to do with that. That just had to do with the sheer volume of SPAC related activity. And I, I just don't think we'll see that again. I, I thought you were going to say actually hostess just because, you know, the environment back then, it was just, it was so difficult. No one knew what a SPAC was. <laughs> but here was, the, here was the beauty of hostess. And this is why I didn't choose hostess. It was the hard, well, first of all, it, it, it did have different elements of difficulty, right? Andy Juar, I can't tell you the number of times, God bless him, we would call me up and say, hey, you know, all throughout the process, hey, I just learned this, is this true about SPACs? And I'd say, yes, Andy, it's true, but give you the context. And he would be mad. Okay, we're not going to do this, et cetera, et cetera. And then when I give him the context and how it would manifest itself, he would calm down and say, okay, I got it, I got it. But there were just so many hoops to run through. But here's why I didn't choose that one, for three simple reasons. One, Andy and Dean were fantastic. They were absolutely outstanding people. They were willing to listen. They were willing to take the risk. They knew that the benefits to them was there. And so they were willing to take the risk relative to the benefit. And they were fantastic partners. We never look at any of the partnerships that we that we forge as transactions. We never view anything as a transaction. It's always a partnership. And so they were absolutely outstanding partners. The second, and, and the management team was, was fantastic. And the second thing was the story was so compelling. And it was so simple. The simpler you can make something, the better. These more complex things that try to come to market, we tend to stay away from complex. If we can't, sim- it can be complex behind the curtain but it has to be simple on the front. Hostess was the simplest story in the world. You could tell it, you could say three points, you'd tell it and everybody would go, got it, right? Worst to first in terms of industry margins, right? You know, you'd point it and say, hey, look, they just, we just finished a year with 300 million of revenue. The old Hostess before it went into liquidation was over a billion. So we still have, just to get back to where the company was before, and there's so many more distribution points today, you still have, you know, you, you're probably going to go 4X in terms of, size now. And people, so people would buy into it. The story was really compelling. And then for people of my age who grew up on this, when you would sit across the table from investors and you talk about hostess, they would be beaming, yeah. right? And then when we would bring in free samples, they would even be beaming <laughs> more, right? So from that perspective, the backdrop was difficult, but there were so many positive elements that 
hostess really wasn't uh, wasn't the most challenging in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, you guys thinking about it, you, you've done some really interesting deals where the due diligence must have been a heck of a lot of fun. Luminar, right? Polestar. Yeah, yeah. Vera Mobility. Vera oh, Mobility. Oh, Vera, right. Yeah. yeah, fantastic company. One of my favorite management teams, just absolutely outstanding. So looking at your most recent announced deal, which is with Gore's 8 and Footprint, maybe you can kind of talk a little bit about that, that deal and... Um, Give us a little bit of information on that. So Footprint at its core, you had some engineers, material science engineers out of Intel that started this eight years ago. And they basically came in and it was actually part of what they had discovered at Intel, which they were saying there were uh, 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 plastic contaminants on the silicone. And they were saying, and it was, a, it was a small amount, but it was meaningful enough where they started testing food, right? And that we're actually finding, I think somebody wrote an article recently saying, you know, we digest a credit card's worth of of, of plastic, you know, as human beings, right? And so they looked at it and I said, this is horrible. Well, the majority of that contamination is coming from the packaging, right? It's either lined with plastic or it's actually housed in plastic. And I think whereas people my age are used to that, right, have become used to it and are somewhat maybe, you know, we don't like it, but I think we've lived with it. I think you find millennials and Gen Zs, especially saying, no, we're not going to buy products that are touched by plastic. I don't think it's just a health thing. It's a, it's a, it's an environmental thing. So what these folks from uh, Footprint did is they went and said, we want to find the ability to create packaging. And it's really focused on the uh, supermarket, right? So if you go into the frozen food aisle or anywhere else, you go and buy a Annie's mac and cheese or a Kraft mac and cheese, instead of coming in a plastic container that you throw into your microwave or add hot water, it's 100% uh, biodegradable. It's 100% plant-based. There's no plastic whatsoever. So plastic-free. And the benefits to that are, are, are off the charts. The, the challenge is there have always been others that have gone out there and been able to do something that doesn't contain plastic, but the price point was so much higher. So if Kraft was buying something that let's say call it eight or 10 cents on a plastic basis, this alternative was let's say 40 or 50 cents. And so Kraft was gonna sit there and say, I can't pass that on, I'm not gonna do it, right? So he's been one of the biggest issues with moving down the environmental path. Well, these guys have been able to come up with the science and technology that are able to do it on parity with plastic. And so now you've, I mean, and if you look at, and I, I encourage people to look at the investor presentation on file with the SEC, if you look at their customer base already, it's the who's who of the consumer products world and, and the Fortune 100. I mean, these are companies that have already made commitments to the world about sustainability measures and eliminating plastic. And now here comes Footprint with the ability to do it, which is why I said, you know, these guys, 2023 have already said, we're gonna do 500 million in revenue. They've already got, you know, 500 as of the end of last year, which is what I should point to. They had 580 million of that already already committed to 100% with, with the, the names, you know, that all of us would look at and say, these are the premier worldwide company. So we're, and that's growing exponentially. The only thing, this company, the only thing holding it back is its ability to ramp its manufacturing. Everything else in our diligence is, is not an issue. The only risk is that. So we're quite excited about it. All right. Well, I think, I think that's it. I don't want to keep you too long. I do appreciate you coming by. This is always super interesting talking to you, Mark. So thank you. No, I appreciate the time always and the invitation.